Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangeley Capital. With me as always is my co-host and the founder of Rangeley Capital, Chris Demuth. It is Wednesday, January 20th, and today we're going to start by talking a bit about the market's recent sell-off and volatility, and then we'll talk a bit about dividends after that. So Chris, why don't I set the stage a little bit? The market had kind of another route today. It uh, was down around 1%, and it was down almost 3% at its peak. I think this is the worst month since 2008 or 2009, the worst month we've had in a while. The VIX, which is also known as kind of the fear gauge, touched 30, which indicates pretty extreme fear. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about what the market's so scared of, and in particular, I want to talk about how you can take advantage of the market's fear. So why don't you jump in? Well, the, fundamentally, the markets are expensive, although they're a lot less expensive today yep. than even a few months ago on the basic criteria I look at, including uh, the averaged over a long period of time, the uh, uh, price earnings ratio, uh, and uh, the relationship between GDP uh, and the market cap. Uh, yeah. So, so I think my favorite is uh, market cap to GDP. Mm-hmm. There, I think there are even some issues with that, but... Over a long time, a market cap to GDP ratio of about one has kind of been where markets settle in. At the start of the year, the markets were at 1.2x GDP, and today they're kind of at 1.06x. So some people might think this is a big fear-driven pullback, but it could also just be valuations were kind of stretched and we're pulling back to more normal valuations. So I think that's part of it. I think people are thinking a lot about geopolitical risk. People Absolutely. always are thinking about that, but uh, right now maybe more uh, than usual. Uh, and there is also a concern that we've kind of shot all of our bullets in terms of monetary policy. Yep. Central banking makes a, a big impact on markets. And we're in an environment where there's not easy, obvious precedence for where we go from here. Yep. So in many ways, central bankers, it, you know, the Fed funds, they raise rates for the first time, but they've only got one Fed funds cut inch bullet to fire. And then after that, it's back to quantitative easing. And that's kind of all they've got. So there's not much margin of safety in terms of central banking to juice the economy if it needs it. One, one, of, the, one of the thoughts I often have that leads to some discomfort is that we are truly in a sample size of one yep uh, and that you might have some thoughts on the world uh, every time interest rates go from 15 percent or so to zero percent or so but that's simply the life you've lived yep. through you might not know anything about tomorrow through the next few decades so many professional investors if you were born in say 1960 you came of age in around 82 and that's when interest rates were actually peaking mm-hmm. so today your entire investing experience have been interest rates have gone from 18% to effectively 0%. Mm -hmm. And you've always invested in an interest rate down environment, which is wonderful for all asset prices. But looking forward, it's almost certain that interest rates will be be in an up interest rate environment over the next 15 years. And what that means for asset prices... And the people who are still around have used that particular period well. So maybe they were ingenious or maybe they were simply the decision makers who decide to own assets in that period. Well, we're not going to have that period again. So they might have done uh, 30,000 things. 
but there's one underlying variable, and so they feel very smart, but they might be lucky. It's kind of like a turkey who lives on a turkey farm, and he's got a farmer, and he's like, oh, well, the past thousand days, the farmer's been my best friend. Yeah. Well, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, and the farmer's not your best friend anymore. Exactly. Uh, it's just something completely different. Anyway, what's more interesting to me is uh, volatility is elevated. Yeah. Markets are down. I don't think they're super cheap yet, though I think there are a lot of cheap ideas out there. Mm-hmm. But how does someone take advantage of the market's fear and high volatility, market sell-offs, panic, those types of things? Well, there are ideas that were good that are now great. Yep. And I think that uh, something that gives me a huge amount of comfort is ideas that in the fall or coming into the early part of the winter, we were kind of struggling through are we uh, paying about right or slightly under or slightly overpaying? And we are trying to get a lot of specificity about the future. There are numerous ideas that are beneath their reasonably likely downside, yep. where uh, I would say that a same consensus of, now maybe they're sell-side analysts, but these are adults who are presumably uh, free on their own recognizance and sane and clean and sober who think something's going to grow at, uh, say, 15%, maybe it's 10, maybe it's 20, uh, if we're lucky, maybe 30, where you're paying for no growth. Yep. None. Yep. None whatsoever. And so so you own, instead of uh, the aperture has widened for the future, that, that so many things can happen where you don't lose money at today's prices and some ideas that we're looking at. And uh, so that is uh, great. Yep. So I think for uh, what we do, individual stock picking at, Anytime stocks pull back 20% or so, you you can certainly, I hate the term, but baby thrown out with the bathwater. You mm-hmm. can certainly go and look at individual securities and uh, find things that are undervalued. But I just want to talk a little bit about taking advantage of elevated volatility. If the market's really scared, what are the best just in general ways to kind of uh, play the market's fear against itself? Well, only in the past few years have there been readily available securities uh, representing volatility itself. I believe they are all uh, flawed in how they are structured. I believe they are mostly worth zero eventually. And uh, they allow you uh, to capture uh, the the, uh, role of contracts and that will on average make money over time so uh the role of contracts Mm -hmm. is volatility is a naturally declining asset so as you get closer to uh volatility is actually the way it's priced is like an option so Mm -hmm. it expires january 15th or something now as you get closer to january 15th the value of that volatility contract goes to zero now there are a lot of things that let you buy volatility but the issue is they're declining contracts And uh, what happens is, as you get closer to January 15th, you have to go buy the February 15th contracts. So your contract is declining in value to zero, and then you go buy the February contract, which which has not declined to zero. So there's a natural negative roll. Mm -hmm. You're paying up to buy next next month's contract, selling low, buying high. And the way to take advantage of this is to do the opposite, short a volatility index, or I'll let you talk a little bit about one. I think there are a couple of negative reverse volatility uh things you can buy there are the way to think about this is there's a whole insurance industry uh with uh high paid executives and big buildings in new york city there's no insurance buying industry Uh, so so clearly the economics it, it is almost a perfect transaction between people who want to define their payoff or want to 
protect themselves against specificity and people who are simply willing to take the economic side of that trade if they're willing to take some pain in terms of how and when uh, the economics are captured. So I think one of them is uh, the ticker is XIV, mm-hmm. and it's the reverse volatility index. So mm-hmm. volatility goes down, you get paid. Volatility goes up, you lose money. And it, it can be extremely volatile. You know, In periods like today, you're in the past couple months, you're going to lose a lot of money in XIV. But I think over the long term, it takes advantage of uh, kind of volatility's natural decay and it's an interesting instrument for kind of betting against volatility on the short or long term. If, if you have an account, you know, if you're either professional or have uh, access to shorting, uh, I tend to like shorting the uh, the long volatility uh, securities. For somebody who only has access to nominally long securities, XIV is a great one. There's also a ZIV, which is yep. slightly different, but uh, um, but they uh, are volatile by definition. But uh, you know, sized appropriately, I, I generally say that these are great small positions and probably terrible large yep. positions. For the the only other one I'll mention is I think writing puts, which is uh, the stock trades at twenty, mm-hmm. and you can sell a put, which gives someone else the option to sell it to you at say fifteen, mm-hmm. and I think that's a great way for investors to puts are more expensive when volatility is up so you can sell them for more money mm-hmm. i think it's a great way for investors to pre-commit okay i like this stock i would like it more at 15 i will not let my advantage my emotions get the best of me if this drops another 25 percent, i will buy i'm committing to buying this from you at 15 i think that's great you- everybody has to uh take into account and often battle their emotions of greed and fear and other emotions and John Templeton, Sir John Templeton, said that his best way, uh, he suffered from the same emotions as anybody else. But to deal with them, he said, pre-commit. pre-commit Decide yep. what you're doing at a given price under certain circumstances. And the nice thing about writing options is you You've have pre-committed. literally pre-committed. Exactly. Uh, and I think that that can be very sound. And then the one, let, let me just add one small uh, uh, addendum to that, which is it's especially good in complex corporate events because the people who are often making these markets, it's just according to Black Scholes. It's a very formulaic way yep. that sometimes is applicable and sometimes isn't. But for for a little example is uh, that a company that is being auctioned where uh, Will have spoken with a lot of the people who are uh, principals uh, and looking at it. And so say before the process started, we were talking with private equity and they were willing to spend $40 a share in it. Uh, It's unclear to the market whether they will buy it or whether a higher price will come from a strategic buyer. And so maybe it's worth 40, maybe it's worth 50, maybe it's trading at 42. And the private equity guy walks away. And so where should the stock price go? Well, whether it should really be 41 or 43, if we can write puts at 40, saying the person willing to pay 40 walked away because the price was too high, uh, you can have a payoff structure that is a very good fit for the corporate event and is being priced on Black Shoals, which has no applicability to the situation. It no longer matters because the guy, there's almost, in many ways, there's a put at 40, right? If the private equity guy could have bought it at 40, he would have. The issue is the price is too expensive. But the market's pricing it kind of like a normal contract. Exactly. Uh, the other one, I don't even know if we're going to have time for dividends. I think the the other one where it can be interesting is in merger arbs. So mm-hmm. this is 
company X is buying company Y for $30 a share, and the shares will trade for, you know, $29, $29.50, something like that. Many merger ARBs must buy puts to hedge the position mm-hmm. at, they have to buy 25 to kind of yes. protect their tail risk. So selling those puts to people who are forced to buy them can be very interesting, and you can capture... Uh, you can capture very interesting premiums on deals that have a very low chance of breaking. I don't know if there's time You've got a big smile on your face. Number one favorite put rating opportunity of all time. Go, let's just, we'll have to do dividends another time. Let's okay. just go for the put rating. I, yeah. I, we really didn't even mean to get into this, but uh, now that we're into it. Um, I blame we, you for this. We, I, we, you started talking specialized private equity buyer, and I was like, oh no, come we on. We're looking at uh, a situation uh, in the middle of, I don't know if I can say the financial crisis. Maybe now it's the last financial crisis. If we're <laughs> I don't think we're at financial um, crisis. But it was yet. a. Uh, it was a chemical deal, and it was a well-shopped one where it was an extremely tight contract, but it was a uh, distressed buyer in the middle of a weak market. And uh, they were buying a company, and some of the very, very large equity holders were about to walk in at the last minute, and they were going to put in a massive debt deal to save the deal, and it was going to go through on the original price. Now, here's what happened next. Because they were going to save the deal... Once they put in the debt, they were going to be oversized on their position limits. So they started massively buying puts because something was going to happen making those worthless. Yeah. So at half the deal price, the puts started going a dollar, two dollars. hitting $5 at half of a deal price because the deal was about to get closed. And I was sitting here just writing them and writing them and writing them. And I, at the time, was actually doing work on the contracts for some of the large hedge funds involved. And uh, they knew what I was doing. I knew what they were doing. But it was actually something becoming more expensive in the market because it was imminently worthless. So, you know what? Maybe this is a great time to talk... Hey, that's a fascinating, interesting story. I think this is a much more complex topic than we normally talk about. But I think what it comes down to is there were non-economic buyers of those puts, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who knew the deal was going to happen, but they had to buy those puts because of an arbitrary process. And I think a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast, a lot of the investing we do, a lot of the writing we do is buying things where there is either – buying things where there's a non-economic buyer – our non-economic seller are selling things where there's a non-economic buyer. So we mentioned KCLI a couple of weeks ago. That was something where there were non-economic sellers who had to sell because it delisted from the NASDAQ to OTC. No fundamental change in business, no fundamental change in risk, just the fundamental change in where the company traded. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of conspiracy theorists or skeptics or cynics look at actors and say, there's this rule in place. We LPs have put position limits. What happens if they break the rules? Well, at least knowing the hedge fund industry better than I know any other industry, what I tend to find is quite the opposite. What if they follow the rules? Yeah. These are generally people who are pretty happy with where they ended up in life, and they're going to check off all the boxes to stay there. And so you're going to put a rule there and they're going to follow them. But sometimes it leads to some very unexpected, if not even perverse consequences, like doing things to artificially stay within it that you never would have expected. So I I think Charlie Munger, who is 
phenomenally brilliant, fabulously wealthy, Warren Buffett's partner in Berkshire. He's the one who said, like, look, I, I'm probably in the top 1% of uh, people who understand the power of incentives. Mm-hmm. And even I have underestimated the power of incentives. Yeah. And I think the thing is, for the most part, people follow the rules you put in place on them. It's just the rules can create perverse incentives where you're buying puts that you know are going to be worthless because you know your board or your hedge fund manager contractor whatever has forced you to so uh chris i think that's it and anything else you want to say on this topic I, we're gonna have to as get charlie to, would say i have nothing done. as charlie would say I have nothing done. i think we're gonna have to do dividends next time uh before we sign off uh thanks again for listening to us if you like this podcast please be sure to subscribe on itunes stitcher or soundcloud i normally say uh rate us but did you know chris we only have one rating on itunes so far and I know there are podcasts with far less followers than us who have many more ratings. So, what did you give us? Uh, I didn't get. I didn't do it actually. Oh. It, it was uh, Clueless Funda who gave us a five star rating and said our sound has improved. Excellent. So, thank you for all of that, Clueless Funda. But please do rate us if you haven't already rated us already. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Have a good one.